Today's scripture reading is John 1, 29 through 34. Behold, the Lamb of God. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Good morning, East Point Church. Indeed, it is a good morning. It's a good morning. Because the Lord says in his word in Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And I was reminded of that and this morning and all week long how important that is. And you've experienced a week like we've experienced in our national collective conscience and mind and heart. It's good to know that there's a place where you can go to be reminded that the Lord is Lord and that God is good. My heart broke this week, as many of yours did, no doubt, as you watched the disturbing images and disturbing voices of all those thousands of Americans as they marched upon our capital, the seats of authority in our country. And no doubt your hearts broke for various and different reasons. My heart broke because I couldn't help but remember a song that we used to sing, and I never sung that song until I got to Bible college, never even heard of the song until I got to Bible college. And in Bible college, we would frequently sing a song in chapel that said, people need the Lord. People need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams, he's an open door. I've reminded how much indeed we all need Jesus. I need the Lord. You need the Lord. Those out in the world and the streets need the Lord. And I, and I thought, Lord, might the church be faithful this morning in pointing people to Jesus? You know, those people went to Washington, D.C. to protest the transition of power. They went to Washington, D.C. because they hoped to pause or hesitate or even derail the transition of authority 
And when I think of transitions, beloved, I don't think of transitioning from one president to another. I don't think of transitioning from one place to another. I don't think of transitioning of one sinful authority power to another sinful authority power. But I think of the transitions of God. God has transitions. I want to give you one this morning. This is not my sermon. It probably should have been. But it's not. We're going to get to John in a minute. But in Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, and whence you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, at the end of the day, at the end of all the popular and divisive rhetoric, I hear but God. At the end of all of President Trump's tweets, I hear but God. CNN can run out all of their pugnants and all of the politicians and they can assess all that is going on as they perceive it to be. And when they finish speaking, I hear the word of God saying, but God. No matter what else is going on in the world, however terrible it seems, However rebellious it seems as men and women are working out what the Bible says by nature, they are rebellious and children of wrath like we all once were. In the end, we say, but God. But God is still God. But God is still in control. But God will have the final word. But God, in the end, laughs. But God is still worthy of our praise. But it is to God that we go and find our hope, and find our trust, and find our life. 
I thought about that this morning, and I said, Lord, why didn't you give me Ephesians chapter 2 to preach on this morning? But God, as God would have it, we're in John chapter 1. But beloved, as heavy as your heart may be, and some of our hearts indeed are heavy, God says, remember, but God. He is still your God, and he is still in control. Amen? Amen. John chapter 1. We're still in verses 29 through 34, as we were last week because we only got to verse 29. We're going to get through 34 today by the grace and the mercy of God. Well, the word of God has been read in our hearing this morning. Thanks to our sister Cassidy. Let's pray now that the Lord would indeed plant it in our hearts and allow it to bear fruit in our lives. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have once again allowed us to come into this place. Thank you for calling us to come into your presence that we might be reassured of your power, of your authority, of your grace. Lord, we are weak and you are strong. Lord, we are faithless and you are faithful. Lord, you are good and we are not. But we thank you. And for all that we are not, we are still yours. And you have loved us with an everlasting love and have given us a living hope. Today, and always. So now, Lord, as we meditate upon your word and we give attention, we pray that you would open our ears that we would hear, and open our hearts that we might receive Jesus again this morning. Might he be a real and new Christ to us. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thinking, thinking of a transition of power, I recently completed a book on the life of Abraham Lincoln. Now, those of you who might know me might know that that is not an odd thing. How many books have I read about Abraham Lincoln? I don't know. But sometimes I think I know Abraham Lincoln better than Mary Todd did. And Abraham Lincoln is both a complex and a simple man. I would argue that the most complex and at the same time most simple American 
I have ever read about. And therefore, Lincoln fascinates me. He intrigues me. And he frustrates me, even as he in inspires me. And in this, I am not alone. Frederick Douglass was a contemporary of Abraham Lincoln. He was not just a contemporary of President Lincoln, but he was also an admirer and an adversary. Douglas greatly respected Lincoln and yet was not ashamed to say how frustrated he often was because he believed Lincoln cared too much for white Americans and too little for black Americans. Douglas believed that Lincoln kind of slow-walked and slow-talked emancipation and often double-spoke when he spoke about American freedom and the freedom of black Americans. And for Douglas, Lincoln was often a foe. But remarkably, he was always a friend. And theirs was a mutual admiration. There was no one Douglas admired more and no one whose difficult political position he appreciated more than Abraham Lincoln. And in the end, and in the end, Douglas himself credited Lincoln with doing more for the cause and freedom of black Americans than anyone prior to him. In fact, after Lincoln's death, Douglas declared that no man was ever more fitted for his mission in this world than was the man Abraham Lincoln. Well, as fitting as Douglas might have thought, or I might think, that those words are as they apply to Abraham Lincoln, beloved, I would suggest to you this morning that there is one even more fitting for his mission than Abraham Lincoln this morning, and that was John the Baptist. It could be said, and I think rightly so, that there was no man more rightly born and more divinely prepared and fitted for his mission in life than was the man that we know as John the Baptist. And yet, if you were to tell John the Baptist that you thought that there was no one more fitting for their calling than he, John, I am convinced that John would say without hesitation, no, there is still one whom providence and eternity has most rightly fit for the fulfillment of his divine mission, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. John would say that in every way and every day, 
Jesus was better prepared and better accomplished than me. This is his point. As we are reading our text this morning, John would say, I preach repentance from your sin. Jesus came to take away your sin. John would say, I came to baptize with water. Jesus has come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. John would say, I am a prophet of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the point of our text this morning. John is saying, listen, I don't just know Jesus. I know Jesus. He didn't just know Jesus, beloved. He knew Jesus the way only God can reveal Jesus to be known. That's how he knew Jesus. He knew Jesus is the Son of God who completely takes away sin and gives Holy Spirit in fullness. That's the Jesus John knew. That's the Jesus John wants us to know. The Jesus who is the Son of God who takes away sin, who gives the Holy Spirit. Jesus, John says, is the man with the mission accomplished through the means of God. Jesus is the man of salvation. Jesus accomplishes the mission of salvation. Jesus accomplishes it through the means of salvation. What is the mission? John reminds us. The mission was to take away the sin of the world. What is the means? The means is through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And who is this man? He is no doubt the eternal Son of God. This is the God, this is the Jesus that John knew. This is the Jesus that John proclaimed. This is the Jesus we discover this morning. We discover him first in understanding the mission to take away sin. You look at the text and you need to ask yourself the question why was Jesus there? Why was he there? Not, 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 don't get me wrong. I'm not asking why he was there by the Jordan River that day. I'm not asking why he had ventured out so far out into the desert away from the city of Jerusalem. The question that I am asking is, why was he there? Why was he born? Why was he upon the earth at all? Why had he come to live 
and walk those Palestinian roads. John the Baptist made it clear. The reason Jesus came was to take away sin. That's why he was there. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Last week, this is what we saw, right? He's the Lamb of God. Genesis 22 and 7, we're reminded that he is the eternal and the final answer to Isaac's question. He is our substitute. We learned also in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 that he is our pastoral, our Passover lamb, the one whose blood covers us, the one who secures us, the one whose blood pleads for us. In Isaiah 53 and verse 10, we were reminded that he is our sacrifice, the one whom God offered up for us, the one the world rejected, but the one who didn't reject us. In other words, as it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, Jesus came to bear our sins, to take away our sins, to remove the guilt of sin from the world. This is the mission. He came to take away sin. This is why Jesus came. It's what the Bible tells us clearly again and again. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5. And you know that Jesus came to do what? Take away our sins. That's why he came. That's why he was revealed. That's why he manifested himself in the world to take away sin. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is why he came, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the reason Jesus was revealed. And you really don't know Jesus if you don't know him in the forgiveness of sin. You don't know him. And this is why John could say, I knew him, but I didn't know him. I didn't know him until it was revealed to me that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then I knew him. Beloved, Jesus didn't come to be the answer to philosophical debates. Jesus did not come to join the long line of life coaches or religious leaders. He came to take away sin. All your sin. Anyone's sin. This is the universality of the message. Sin in the world. It's what he came to do. Reminded, we're reminded, therefore, that there is no place where sin cannot be forgiven. No place in the world. The Americas, Europe, 
Asia, Australia, Africa, North Pole, South Pole, no pole at all. It doesn't matter. Anywhere there is sin, he came to take it away. There is no place where sin cannot be forgiven. There are no peoples whose sin cannot be forgiven. Jews and Gentiles, black and white, red, yellow, brown, and all the pigments in between. The mission of Christ is the forgiveness of all. There's no place where sin cannot be forgiven. There are no peoples whose sin cannot be forgiven. And beloved, there is no sin which cannot be forgiven. Oh, beloved, as great as you believe your sin to be, the mission of Christ is greater. As big as others may assume your offense is, the mission of Christ is bigger. I don't care if your sin leads you to prison or it leads you to the palace. Your sin can be forgiven. Whether your sin destroys your life or the life of thousands, your sin can be forgiven. This is the mission. He came to take away the sin of the world. And why must he take away? Because you need to understand what sin does. And you then understand why he must take it away. Sin separates us from God. Sin puts us at enmity, at war with God. In Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sin have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. Sin separates us from God, puts us at war, at enmity with God. Not only does sin separate us from God, sin puts you in bondage. John chapter 8 and verse 34, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say to you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Sin separates you from God. Sin puts you in bondage. Sin condemns you to death. In Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4, the Bible is clear. The soul that sins shall die. And what does Jesus do in taking away our sin? Well, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, the Bible says that Christ now brings us to God. 
He brings us to God, and that which separates us from God separates us no more. He ends the enmity between you and God, and now you have peace with God because Christ fulfilled the mission of taking away sin. Not only are you no longer... Not only are you no longer separated from God, but the Bible says because Christ fulfilled that mission, now you are no longer in bondage to sin. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 8, Christ, by fulfilling its mission, has broken the chains of your bondage to sin. Now you are no longer slaves to sin. You are free in the righteousness of God. And what does Christ do? He makes us alive in God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5. He has made us who were dead in our trespasses and sin by fulfilling his mission makes us now alive in God. Christ satisfies our need for righteousness. What God requires me to be Christ is all that and more for me. Why? Because he fulfilled his mission. What now can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No one, no one, no one, because the Lamb of God has taken away our sin. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing, nothing, because the Lamb of God has taken away our sin. What can wash away your sin? Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make you whole again? Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but Jesus fulfilling the mission for which he came. You don't know him if you don't know his mission. You don't know him. When John saw him, John said, I know who that is. He is the one who takes away my sin. What is the means of that, John says? The means through which this is happening is baptism with the Spirit. John the Baptist now, before we go any further, I think it's important to understand that Baptist was not his name, in case you're getting a little confused. Baptist was not his name, nor was it the denomination of his church, though some might like to think it was. No, beloved, he was not a Baptist. John was a prophet who baptized people. 
and therefore probably more correctly should be called John the Baptizer. But I digress. John the Baptist. This was the means through which John accomplished his mission. The mission that God gave John was to preach repentance from sin. What was the means through which he accomplished that mission? By bringing people to the baptismal waters. This is the means through which John the Baptist accomplished his mission. But as important as John the Baptist was, John says, Jesus is the true Baptist. Jesus is the real Baptist. Jesus is the baptizer. Chapter 1 and verse 30, he says, And this is he of whom I already said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I baptize with water, but Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. What is John saying here, beloved? John is saying that while my baptism, my mission, and therefore the accomplishment of my mission is important, there is one's mission who supersedes my mission. There is one whose baptism is superior to my baptism. There is a superiority, John says, to the baptism of Jesus. You might recall, you might recall in Matthew chapter 3 where when Jesus first came to see John, this is Jesus coming to see John in John chapter 1? This isn't the first time he's come. He's already been baptized. He's coming out again. The first time he came to see John, why did he come to see John? Well, Matthew chapter 3 tells us that Jesus came out the first time to see John, the reason why everybody came out to see John to hear him and be baptized. But when John saw Jesus coming, John said in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 14, I don't need to baptize you. I need you to baptize me. And when he saw Jesus coming this time, he says, look, the Lamb of God whose baptism you need even more than mine. Behold, the Lamb of God who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John was saying that his baptism is superior. He says, I baptize the outer person. He will baptize the inner person. I baptize, my baptism has purpose, but his baptism has power. My baptism satisfies, 
but his baptism saves. In other words, his baptism is the baptism that saves you and sanctifies you. His baptism purges your sin and empowers you to know that he is the Son of God who takes away your sin. All I can do is tell you that he takes away your sin. When he baptizes you, you will know that he takes away your sin. And that is the sanctity of Jesus' baptism, beloved. This is what John is saying. There is a sanctity to the baptism of Jesus. Listen, beloved, listen, listen. The taking away of sin is only meaningful to those who believe. It means nothing if you don't believe it. It has no effect if you don't believe it. It is only meaningful to those who believe, to those who trust in Jesus. You know what the baptism of the Holy Spirit does? It gives you the power to believe. It gives you the strength to trust and obey that the Lamb of God has taken away your sin. This is why it's so needful. This is why John says, I don't need you to, I don't need to baptize you. I need you to baptize me. I want to know. I want to trust I want to know the regenerating, life-giving power that comes from this baptism. The power in this baptism. Jesus reminds us of this in John chapter 3, as we shall see later in verse 5. When Jesus says to Nicodemus, you remember, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God because that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of Spirit is Spirit, and only in the Spirit will you have the power to believe. Only in the Spirit will you be made alive so that you might behold, so that you might look so that you might see the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. The flesh will not accomplish that. The Spirit has to be made alive. The Spirit has to be born again. The baptism of Jesus is what it means to be born again. You are made alive in the Spirit so that now you may see and enter into the kingdom of God. That's the power. 
of this baptism. But this baptism doesn't just have a power. John reminds us that it has a permanency too, beloved. This is a permanent thing. Where he says in verse 3, thinking of Jesus, he says, I saw the Spirit descend and remain. I saw the Spirit descend upon him and it stayed. Now you might imagine John was looking as he's baptizing Jesus and he hears the voice from heaven and the Holy Spirit comes down as a dove and it rests on Jesus and John probably said, wow, that's amazing. But at any moment, expected it to just flutter away. And you know what, beloved? The dove stayed. It remained. It didn't move. Because the barber reminds us that Jesus received the Spirit in fullness. In fullness. You know, in the Old Testament, oftentimes, beloved, the, the anointing of Holy Spirit often came just for a purpose, for a time, and it could leave. It could leave. The anointing of the Spirit, the anointing of the Lord came to Samson, but the Bible says in Judges chapter 16 and verse 20 that it left him. When King Saul was when King when Saul was made king, the anointing and spirit came upon him. But the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 14 that the spirit left him. In Psalm 51 and verse 11, when David is repenting of his sin, what did he pray? He prayed for the Holy Spirit not to be taken from him. Beloved, but with Jesus, no such prayer would ever be necessary. For with those baptized by Jesus, nothing like that could ever be the case. As with Jesus, the Spirit remains and does forever remain. This is not just the power of the Spirit. This is the permanency of the Spirit. When Christ baptizes with the Spirit, you get the Spirit like Christ got the Spirit. There's no two Holy Spirits, beloved. The Spirit that came upon Jesus is the Holy Spirit that he promises to give to his people. Those baptized in Christ, those baptized by Christ, or those more accurately who are baptized in the Spirit by Christ, always and remain in Christ by the Spirit. The reason you remain in Christ is because the Spirit remains. And beloved, beloved, I understand 
You can do a lot of things with the Spirit. You can grieve the Spirit. You can resist the Spirit. You might even have it in your mind to question the Spirit. But once the Spirit comes, there's one thing you cannot do. You cannot lose the Spirit. And that is because Jesus promised that would be the case. John chapter 14, verse 16. And he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Spirit given to you and in you, like Christ, remains. Remains. And this is the means, this is the means by which Christ brings us to trust in his sacrifice. You ever want to know how you became aware that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? The moment that you trusted and believed that your eyes were open and you came to understand, it was because of the Spirit working in you, working out faith and trust in Christ. The Holy Spirit comes and he makes us alive. The Holy Spirit comes, and he opens our eyes. The Holy Spirit comes so that we can see, so that we can trust that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is the mission. And that is the means by which he accomplishes the mission. Because he is the man who can get it done. He is the only one who can get it. That's what John is saying. This is what John came to realize. There is only one who can do that. There is only one who can fulfill this mission. There is only one who has the means. And there is the man. And I came to tell you, and to testify that he is the Son of God. The Son of God. As we've said before, as we began these series of messages in the Gospel of John, this is the point. This is the point. This is the point of the Gospel of John, right? John chapter 20, verse 31 John says these things are written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, that you might know that he is the Son of God. John said early on, chapter 1, John the Baptist says, I know. You don't have to write it anymore, John. I know. There is the Son of God. In verse 34, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And where did he get that from? Again, beloved John, and cooking this up himself. This is what was revealed to him. This is what was revealed to him. This is the title that was given 
in John's presence at his baptism. He will have heard the voice from heaven declare this about Jesus as he was baptizing Jesus. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 22, the voice from heaven came and said, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is what John would have heard. This is what God revealed to John. God the Father declared that Jesus is God the Son. And John says, and I can testify to this. This is what was revealed to me. Beloved, this is not natural knowledge. This is not some common knowledge that the Bible says those who know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, know this by special revelation. This is spiritually discerned. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus was asking his disciples, who the people out there say that I am? And they gave a whole list of people and prophets that they thought Jesus might be. But then Jesus looked at Peter, and he says, but Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say to him? Ah, oh, Simon, you must have read that in a book. Ah, oh, Simon, you've been checking your emails. No, he said, Simon, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But this is special revelation. This is special spiritual knowledge that comes by way of the Father. Beloved, no one truly witnesses to Jesus who doesn't witness to the deity of the Son of God. A whole lot of people know Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. You don't know him if you don't know him as the eternal Son of God. You don't know him if you don't know him as the second person of the Trinity. You don't know him if you don't know him as God, very God. As the Son of God. As the incarnate God. As a God to be worshipped as the God to be praised. This is the man that John saw walking by the Jordan that day. This is the man that was revealed to John when he said, he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. Someone has said that it is the man who makes the mission. But then others have said 
that is the mission that makes the man. Well, beloved, I want to suggest to you this morning that in Jesus Christ, the man is the mission. The man is the mission. The Son of God is the Lamb of God. In the Old Testament, remember Isaac? The son needed a lamb. When Jesus came along, Jesus reminds us that the son is the lamb. The man is the mission. Jesus is the one. Jesus is the sacrifice and the Savior. Jesus is the lamb and the Lord. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one our hearts adore. It is he for whom we come. He is the everlasting one. Listen, beloved. People need the Lord. People need to know that there is a man who is fit for the mission because he is the mission. We have that knowledge. This is what we proclaim. This is the testimony we give. This is how we pray. That the Lord Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, would open the eyes and the ears of men and women that they might hear us say, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin in the world. Jesus is the Son of God come to die in your place. More so than any other time, beloved, in recent years, I think we all can agree. People need the Lord. They need to know the man. They need to know the man that is the mission. Let us be faithful, like John, in bearing witness and giving testimony that he is the Son of God. Let's pray.